At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Justin Sherman, who is affiliated with the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Program, who is also a Wired Magazine contributor. Justin, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Great to be here as always. Uh, a real treat. And a word from our sponsors before we begin. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors not only this program, but our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the recent uh, Surface Navy Association's conference and uh, trade show. We're going to be focusing on cyber activity, uh, obviously, uh, as the world watches whether Russia is going to invade Ukraine or not, this sense uh, that Putin is allowing diplomacy uh, to go on, toying with us, uh, if you will, sort of pulling uh, our strings, uh, knowing that he's the one who holds all the cards and that this may not actually about any diplomacy in part because of the absurdist natures, uh, nature of Russia's uh, demands, uh, you know, right down to the effective you know, return of NATO to its 1997 borders, which isn't going to happen, withdrawing defensive missiles and the like. But the area where this conflict is already very, very hot is in um, information, disinformation space, uh, as well as in cyber uh, space. Um, you know, there have been revelations about potential false flag operations uh, and a disinformation video. Walk us through the contours of how this is playing out right over the weeks we've heard from Mike Rogers and Jim Lewis uh, and want to you know bring your voice uh, back into this 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 discussion sort of where are we in what we know about the cyber elements of this campaign and how a false video and disinformation is playing into the Russian strategy which is proving to be effective whether or not they invade or not as with a lot of this below threshold cyber stuff especially with Russia uh, information and cyber operations have been ongoing for years. I mean, this is not something that started, you know, on January 10th or anything like that. For years and years now, the Russian government has persistently, um, you know, been hacking targets in Ukraine to steal intelligence, to steal intellectual property, has been uh, running a number of propaganda and information operations around the occupation of Crimea, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just the, the first important point. Um, in recent weeks, we've seen hacks of Ukrainian websites, uh, you know, sort of once again demonstrating that when we're talking about Russia cyber, we're not just talking about the Russian military and the Russia, uh, Russian security services proper. We're talking about them, but we're also talking about the entire web of cyber criminals, of patriotic hackers of other non-state proxies that the Kremlin can bribe, pay off, co-opt, point at a target and say, look over there, and they start hacking. So that's the first thing we're seeing um, with the hacks of the Ukrainian websites is, is we might see more of that in the coming weeks. The second thing you mentioned concerns 
U.S. Uh, intelligence um, that the government, that the U.S. government released saying that the Russians are looking to create, possibly create some kind of video, some fabricated video as a pretext for invasion. Um, you can go read the story about all kinds of messed up stuff of fake bodies and fake mourning and uh, very much echoes of 2014 when uh, the Kremlin in part rhetorically justified its illegal invasion uh, of Crimea by uh, perpetuating this disinformation myth that there was this fascist government, you know, oppressing uh, ethnic Russians in Ukraine and things like this. So um, point being, the conflict is still ongoing. It's escalating in the cyber and information spaces and in the coming weeks, we're only going to see that, I think, get worse. And and what uh, shape uh, and contours uh, will that uh, take? You, you just did a piece with Gavin Wild uh, of Krebs uh, Stamos Group, uh, who worked on the National Security Council uh, under uh, Fiona Hill, um, focused on Russia. What form does this take when it further escalates? Yeah, that's a good point. And and what Gavin and I wrote about in that article was growing integration between Belarus and Russia in cyberspace. Um, And this sort of goes to my point, right? When we look at what we're seeing now um, in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, uh, and when we look at what might happen in the coming weeks, we're not just talking about, you know, uniformed official members of the Russian military or the Russian security services. Again, it's turning to cyber criminals to run operations, possibly. It's it's leveraging uh, undercover assets. It's turning to certainly the Lukashenko regime in Belarus to move troops into Belarus to leverage uh, Belarusian hackers. So, um, you know, it's an expansive effort by the Kremlin. But again, it underscores that there's a lot of proxy activity happening. And that's really a key part of, of Russian thinking around these cyber issues. Uh, Ann Neuberger's visit was to understate, underscore how uh, right uh, politically important the situation is for somebody who's the cyber director uh, at, on the National Security Council. You know, and we had the warning from uh, Jenny Shirley, which, uh, you know, that the Russians could retaliate against targets in the United States. From your perspective, did the Neuberger visit change anything? And how much can the United States do to help Ukraine defend uh, itself in your estimation? That's an, that's an important question. It's also a tricky question. Um, you know, a couple things. One, certainly Easterly's, uh, the, you know, the warning from CISA is worth noting, right, that, you know, Russia certainly is not taking U.S. targets off the table if it does further invade Ukraine, especially if there's some kind of prolonged armed conflict and Putin perceives the U.S. as assisting in any shape, way, or form, um, you know, to, to hack U.S. targets. So that's important. Uh, on the Ukraine front, the Ukrainians have done, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the, the, you know, lead expert by any means on Ukraine uh, cyber defense, but the Ukrainians have done more since 2014, and I think have a better understanding of Russian capability. But again, as we know, the Russians are very sophisticated in cyberspace and, when we're talking about, it's cliche, but it's true, uh, cyber conflict, the attacker only has to win once. Um, and so that's a real a real risk uh, if something, if Russia escalates further of hitting Ukrainian targets hard. And then on the political signaling front, the, the third point here, 
you know, it's good. I think the administration has been pretty uh, strong in its words with what Russia is doing. But we also saw in 2014 when Russia illegally uh, invaded and annexed Crimea that the West didn't really do anything. There were some sanctions and that was about it. So, um, you know, as someone who, who does a fair amount of trying to understand the Kremlin thinking around some of this stuff, I'm not really sure uh, to what extent this is dissuading them or not, but many of us don't really know that at this point. Right. That's the $64,000 question, as the, as the joke goes, uh, whether or not Putin is going to invade or, or not, or is he uh, achieving some of his goals uh, without uh, in, invading uh, at all? Let me just ask you a brief um, uh, domestic question, right? I mean, it was uh, interesting to see the warning from uh, Jenny Sirley, and, and we talked to Mike Rogers and Jim about that as well, about sort uh, and uh, John Cofrancesco uh, of Fortress Information Security on what companies need to be doing to prepare themselves, for example, in the event that the Russians go offensive in, in the United States. And, and one of the points Mike Rogers has made is that we really need to consider cyber, you know, we, we have a tendency of looking at, at causes belli as Russian troops cross border, as opposed to all the things that are happening in cyberspace that actually get to the point of uh, violating uh, national borders and national sovereignty more important than any, anything else. I mean, do, do we need to be strategically looking at this? I mean, this is a question that you and I have discussed a lot of times on this program, right? Is it, is it time for us to change the calculus and the way that we look at a violation? Because in the event of conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the United States imposes sanctions on Russia or helps Ukraine does not mean the United States then becomes a target of offensive Russian cyber operations, which presumably would cause a red cross, should cross a red line, right? How is it everybody should be preparing, right, if you're an American company? But secondarily, how is it that the folks in the White House have got to look at this situation and, and what actually needs to trigger something more than sanctions? Let's put it that way, whether it's yeah. something kinetic or something that goes beyond stern words. Yeah, a couple questions. Yeah, a couple good questions in there. Um, you know, businesses need to, uh, you know, I think first and foremost realize in general that these geopolitical events are not constrained to just countries, uh, governments, right? I mean, which sounds obvious, but it's it's worth underscoring. There was a great foreign policy piece recently, for example, talking about. Uh, possible targeting of the insurance sector um, via Ukraine. The logic being, if Russia can make Ukrainian businesses uninsurable, that will tank the Ukrainian economy. Um, so there's all kinds of, of sectors of industry that might not be thinking about these kinds of incidents, but might be at risk because of them, and to your point, might end up being a target of Russian cyber operations, um, because that's what, what Putin decides. On the White House side, I think, first and foremost, remembering that uh, the, the way the DHS advisory phrased it, U.S. targets uh, might get attacked by Russian cyber actors if Putin perceives the U.S. as assisting. And the perceives word is really important because we might be materially assisting or not in various ways. But when the Euromaidan revolution happened uh, in Ukraine in 2013 to 2014, Putin, who does not see any opposition movement as legitimate, accused it of being a U.S.-funded coup, 
Um, and this has happened many times over. So point being, Putin projects this paranoid conspiratorial worldview of a U.S. hand everywhere. And so even if we don't really do a, a ton to help the Ukrainians, um, the U.S. could still be a target if Putin thinks we're, we're helping or imagines we're helping. Um, and then the last point to, to, to wrap on your other question is, I think it's exactly the point that we don't really know what to do when Russia engages in these kinds of covert action, political warfare, you know, really modern active measure activities. That's, that's in large part, the point is that whether it's an assassination squad roving the British countryside or launching cyber operations to turn off power grids in Ukraine, it's not clearly an act of war. It's not military conflict. It's in this gray zone. That's part of the benefit the Kremlin gets out of it is Western countries often end up responding weakly or not at all because they're not sure what to do and they're afraid about setting precedents if they do respond. Uh, let me uh, ask you uh, two other questions because we've got to get th- uh, to the log4j uh, vulnerability and the implications uh, of it. Obviously, uh, uh, a Java uh, script, uh, some coding in there that uh, makes uh, just about every software that this is included in uh, vulnerable. But I want to first ask you about undersea uh, cables and infrastructure, right? I mean, there's a there's a sense people have uh, when they think about cyberspace of thinking about it as, uh, you know, sort of in the ether, right? It's in the 5G as opposed to actually, or uh, from satellites. And obviously there's elements of it that are carried by the satellites, but actually the internet is about undersea cables and fiber optic cables that girdle the world. And just as the United States was very good at, um, right, laid most of that cable, right? The United States succeeded Britain as the the biggest cable layer in the world. Uh, And now the Chinese do it. And there is a concern that just as the British uh, laid that infrastructure and benefited from being able to read some of the traffic on it, and and we certainly did that in the global telecommunications structure, many of them with nation-to-nation agreements that allowed us uh, to conduct intelligence on on these and some national networks in partnership with our allies and partners. Uh, The Chinese are doing this. to benefit from it. And the Russians are developing and the Chinese are developing capabilities to be able to interfere with these uh, undersea cables. And indeed, uh, as as the Ukraine-Russia situation was heating up, there were Russian uh, vessels uh, off of uh, undersea cables uh, in several places of the world uh, based on news reports, but also off of Ireland. Uh, you wrote a piece uh, recently about that that appeared on the Atlantic Council uh, website, right? Cord cutting Russian style. Uh, could the Kremlin sever global internet cables? I think it was on January the 22nd that you, you posted that. How do we need to be thinking about the global undersea infrastructure uh, and its importance to cyberspace? And can the Russians interfere with it in a tectonic manner, as as you write. Your point is really worth underscoring. Cyberspace, the cloud, these words make it sound like it's floating in the air somewhere, but it's servers, it's cables, uh, you know, it's hard infrastructure that carries these signals. And as you said, satellites do transmit some internet traffic, but it's really an insignificant uh, portion in the scheme of things. By some estimates, 95, 97 plus percent uh, of global traffic between continents is carried over subsea cables. Um, and so in the Russia-Ukraine case, right, I, I did this blog on this recently, and um, you know, we've since made some, some uh, small tweaks to it with important um, you know, new updates and things like that. But uh, essentially, 
in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, there were reports from some Ukrainian internet companies about unknown actors or maybe Russian actors severing cables on land. So not, not subsea cables, but actually going to, you know, in one story, an internet service provider facility and cutting all of these cables to try and disrupt internet connectivity to Crimea. Now, that didn't put Crimea in an internet blackout. It was sort of a mixed bag move. Um, and there is one subsea cable now linking Crimea to Russia that's owned by Ross Telecom, which is, which is state owned. And that mostly just carries traffic from Crimea to Russia. Um, but part of the reason I wrote this piece beyond pointing out these couple tactical things was, again, this strategic reminder that when we're talking about modern conflict, the Russian government is well aware that information control is a huge part of that. And if you can damage, disrupt, control, hold hostage the physical infrastructure that carries information, that can give you an important strategic edge. And what are the capabilities the Russians have uh, to do this? Because this is an area where they have been investing uh, right, the uh, Laura Sharik uh, submarine uh, had an incident, right, and and it's and there was this sense that that imp- that impeded a uh, deadly uh, fire uh, on the on the sub uh, that killed some very prominent um, uh, Russian submarine force leaders. But ultimately, what are the capabilities the Russians are bringing to bear on this? In Ukraine's case, uh, as I said, a lot of the global internet traffic is carried over land infrastructure. We're not talking about the sea. Um, and so damaging that is sometimes turning off the power to cutting power to a building or actually cutting fiber optic cables, um, you know, with a, a saw or something. Um, right. And to your point about submarines, there is an open question about Russian naval activity near some global subsea cables. Uh, a number of people, including most recently, Um, the head of the UK armed forces have publicly raised concerns about a lot of Russian naval vessels passing suspiciously frequently or many times by uh, undersea cables around the world that are carrying a ton of this traffic. So again, that would be a really escalatory scenario if Russia were to target one of those cables overseas to, to disrupt some connectivity to Europe or something like that. But they have those submarines and they have those capabilities. And, you know, it's, it's certainly not off the table as we uh, wait to see what Russia does in the next several weeks. Uh, and, it, and it would be interesting to see, right? I mean, obviously, uh, the, the United States has uh, demonstrated decades ago its capabilities uh, in this field and obviously something uh, that they don't uh, discuss. And the person you were talking about was Admiral uh, Sir Tony Radican, uh, the Chief of Defense Staff of the United Kingdom, who was the former uh, first uh, Sea Lord or Chief of the Royal Navy. Um, let yeah. me uh, shift uh, gears to Log4j, uh, obviously, uh, you know, an important vulnerability. The House uh, Government Affairs Committee uh, had a hearing. Give us uh, some of the key takeaways and, and how everybody is doing encountering this, right? Um, you know, the, the story was revealed late last year, uh, and it has become an increasingly important storyline. And there isn't a conversation that I have with somebody on cyber uh, that doesn't include talking about Log4j. So take it away. Yeah, Log4j, just in a sentence or two, um, right, is, is uh, software that's used to 
log system activity. It's a, it's a Java software. It's open source um, and used by a number of, of companies, including in consumer devices. And so there was basically this major vulnerability found in uh, the logging tool that compromises its use across hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of companies and millions of, of products. So um, big, big uh, development. And so it's gotten a lot of policy attention. Yes, there was a, a, a House uh, or a Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee hearing uh, this week on it. And some of the key discussion points included what the government can do to better encourage companies to patch for this vulnerability. This of course comes up every time there's a major flaw found uh, in systems, but it's also a daily problem in cybersecurity. You have routine patches uh, issued through software updates. Nobody wants to download it because you're in the middle of an email and your laptop says, wouldn't you like to restart? You're like, no, I would not. Um, and you know, hospitals, right? They're organizations who need to keep systems running 24 seven sometimes and don't really have the time literally to turn things off and, and reboot them. So um, that was a big focus of the hearing. And then another key part centered around the fact that this is open source software. And the question of, it's not a single company developing a, a tool that had a flaw. It's a logging tool that's developed by a community of volunteers and people around the world who contribute to this free uh, open source software. And so what does the government have to do and what can industry do and what can researchers do uh, to better advance security in the open source ecosystem where there is no single actor in charge. From your standpoint, as somebody who looks at these sorts of vulnerabilities and, and how we're doing on remediating them, we're, we're having, these are piling up at such a rate, whether solar, you know what I mean? There's still uh, heartburn after solar winds. And then there was the Microsoft breach and, you know, uh, ransomware was the big story last, uh, last year uh, and, and still an ongoing uh, challenge, right? Un unresolved. I mean, are we making the kind of progress in, in the last couple of months that suggests uh, this is going to be a good year, Justin, or, you know, is, is 2022 going to go into the long lamentable list of years that are, you know, sort of painful on a cyber level? Where we're at with Log4j, I would go skim through if folks want to the hearing. I'm not the expert on that. And the people who testified, uh, many of them are working actually directly on this problem. So, uh, and have been spending their weeks working on this, this vulnerability. So they, they had some interesting comments about that. But I would say in general, we're making some progress, but it's the same set of issues we've seen for years. You have a flaw, like I said, you issue an update to uh, fix that flaw. And then the challenge is getting people to actually put it in place. Um, I would note, this is not just an industry problem, which sometimes is cast as, it's also a government problem. If you look at any number of government cybersecurity standards for agencies that are put out uh, you know, to protect government systems against hacks. If you go look at the GAO, the Government Accountability Office reports on those uh, security upgrades, maybe a year or two years later, you're lucky if half of the agencies and the government have done like two of the things on the checklist. So um, you know, we're still dealing with this inertia problem with this issue of people not patching quickly um, 
And then there is the broader question as well about the difference between small and large businesses when we're talking cybersecurity. And that came up in the hearing. Large businesses might have security teams that can quickly watch for and fix these things, whereas small companies might not even be aware that there's this vulnerability out there um, because they don't have anyone thinking about or looking at it. So, you know, some progress, but again, it's these same, a lot of these same issues that we continue to face. Justin, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for having me. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.